Um, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Romans 16. Uh, next week, we'll resume the book of Job, and we will be prepared to finish that in the next couple weeks. Uh, but today, we're in Romans 16, so I'll invite you to turn your Bibles there. As you do, um, in the Bible, we read a lot of, about kingdoms. Ultimately, we're told in God's word there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, and, and there is the kingdom of the world, or, or known as the kingdom of Satan. And in Matthew chapter 13, uh, this chapter is filled with parables, and all these parables Jesus gives to help us better understand the kingdom of God. And in one of these parables, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is said to be like a, a field of wheat, and the kingdom of the world is the weeds in this wheat field. And so one of the servants asked the master, should we go and pull the weeds? And the master says, no, wait until the harvest. At that time, we will gather the weeds to be burned, and the wheat will be gathered and placed in the barn. What we see all throughout Scripture is that, is that God's kingdom, made up of the church, will continually be opposed by the kingdom of this world, made up of, of Satan who leads it, and all those who deny and reject Jesus Christ as king. And we see that, that this opposition will occur right up until Jesus' return. And all through God's word, we see that the kingdom of this world will include political and cultural powers. The kingdom of this world will certainly contain wealth, prosperity, sexual experimentation, status, popularity, and affluence. If one desires recognition, then they will be drawn to the kingdom of the world. The world promises affirmation. The world promises acceptance. It says, be yourself, follow your own heart. It's the message of the world. But what we see from the beginning to the end of the Bible, <clears throat> even here in, Matthew, <clears throat> here in Matthew 13, is that the kingdom of God will not last. It will fall. It's a house built on lies and deception. It's a field of weeds waiting to be burned. And in the end, what we see is that only God's kingdom will stand. All other kingdoms will fall. And so as, as this last week, many of our men, we got together uh, and we joined with another church, Hope Fellowship, which is down in Hillsborough, Oregon, and we got together for our annual man camp. It was an incredible time. There was about 60 of us that got together, and we talked about what does it mean to be a godly man? What does it mean to be a man in this world, but a citizen of God's kingdom? And so today, I just want to broaden that perspective, and I want to say, what does it mean for us to be a, a godly humanity? What does it mean to know we're, we're in the kingdom of God. We're citizens of this kingdom, and yet we live in this world. What does it mean to be a humanity that loves and follows Jesus? What does it mean to be a humanity that lives for the gospel and shares the gospel? What does it mean that we know the future? That we know that one day all kingdoms, the kingdom of this world, will fall, and there will only be one kingdom left, the kingdom of God, which will reign for all of eternity. So that's what I want us to look at today. So the main point this morning is that as Christians, we live to advance the rule of Christ because his kingdom will last for all of eternity. So I want us to look, what does that mean that we advance the rule of Christ? How do we do that and what does that look like? And so if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you, go ahead and stand 
And we're going to read Romans 16, 17 through 20. This was one of the primary texts that we used at man camp. Uh, if you were a man at man camp and you were here, uh, this message will have some similarity to what you heard and a lot of differences. Uh, so here we go. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts and the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray. Father, Father, we're told in this text that, Lord, you will crush Satan under the saints, under the feet of the saints. Lord, we know that the end of Satan, the end of the kingdom of this world is coming to an end. That day is fixed by you, and there's nothing that can change it. And Lord, may we, as your, as your citizens, as those who have been saved by your grace in Jesus Christ, may we rejoice in that truth, and may that truth impact all the days that we live here on earth. May we know that there is nothing in this world that will last that's apart from your kingdom. Only those who know you and love you and believe in you and have been saved by your grace will dwell forever with you in the new heavens and new earth. God, may that truth radically transform how we live. May it affect the desires that we have, the goals that we have, the purposes that we set for ourselves, the things that we say are important. And God, may we know the gospel and love the gospel and proclaim the gospel at all times. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so I want to walk through this text in four points. Um, the first point, Paul warns us about those who oppose the rule of Christ. And so what I want to do is give just a little recap on, on Romans. We're kind of jumping into Romans right now, 16. So let me just tell you how the book of Romans moves. In, in the first three chapters, Paul explains the sinfulness of humanity. In chapter one, he says that, that we have exchanged the glory of God, the creator, for the glory of creation. And if you know your Bibles, then you know that we see this truth going all the way back into Genesis, back into the garden. In Genesis, we read that God created man and woman, and he placed them in a garden that they would enjoy his rule and that they'd be blessed by him. The, king, or the, the garden represented the kingdom of God. It was God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule. Humanity was to multiply and they were to expand the garden. So eventually this garden would fill the entire earth and all the earth would be filled with image bearers of God who love him and who enjoy him, who experience his blessing. But if you know the word, you know in chapter three, Satan slithers into the garden in the form of a snake and he deceives Adam and Eve into thinking God is not good or just. Satan casts doubt upon God's authority, upon his goodness, and upon his rule. And so that humanity rejected God. Rather than live for God, they 
They said we want to live for ourselves. We, we seek our own glory. We want our name to be made great. So the consequence of their actions is that they were removed from the garden. No longer did they enjoy the presence of God, the blessing of God, the, the rule of God in their life. They were destined to suffer under his wrath. And because all of humanity comes from Adam and Eve, we're all sinful. We all desire our glory rather than the glory of God. This is what's wrong with the world. This, this explains the condition of the world today. We have a, a vertical problem. We have a problem with God. Our relationship with him is broken, and therefore we have a horizontal problem with all those who are around us. Because of sin, we don't love one another rightly. Rather, we fight, we slander, we gossip, we divide over sex, over politics, over culture, and more. And so for for the first three chapters, Paul's just explaining this. And he's, and he's showing that every single person, no matter who you are, where you're born, we're born sinful, and this is the condition in which we are. But then he says, halfway through chapter three, then comes Jesus. Paul explains that Jesus is the son of God, the one who comes and saves us, so we can once again be brought into the presence of God and enjoy his rule. And so for 12 and a half chapters, Paul is going to, to explain the beauty of the gospel, the implications of the gospel. And so what I want to do is I just want to read a few texts that tell us what Jesus has done. And if you're a believer here, then these texts ought to fill you with joy as you're reminded of the gospel. And if you've yet to believe in Jesus, then, then I would encourage you to con consider what Jesus has done that you would believe in him today. In Romans 3.23, we read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What we read is that we've all fallen short, but then Jesus is the one who redeems us. Jesus is the one that justifies us. He is the grace of God. In Romans 5, 6, we read, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ comes when we're weak, when we're ungodly, when we're counted as enemies, it's at that point God gives us the grace of Jesus that we would be saved. There is no earning salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. In Romans 6, 4, we read, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. At salvation, we're united with Jesus. We're given his adoption, or we're given his righteousness. We're adopted into his family. We now are promised to live forever with him. In Romans 8, 8, 1, this is a popular verse. Many of you know this verse. It says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've trusted in Christ, you're forgiven. And you're not partially forgiven. You're not kind of forgiven. You're absolutely fully forgiven, past present, and future sins. His blood covers you. Isn't that good news? That's the beauty of the gospel. You're fully and absolutely forgiven in Christ. No condemnation. And then at the end of Romans 8, we read, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So not only has Christ saved us, not only has Christ made us new, not only is there no condemnation, but he holds us by his love. There's nothing we can do to be unsaved. 
His love secures us and holds us to him. But then we come to Romans 16, 17, and Paul says, watch out. As Paul closes the letter, he's wanting us to know that just like Satan slithered into the garden, there are people who will slither into the church. And what do these people do? They cause division, we read. They teach doctrine that opposes the word of God. They try to lure people back into the kingdom of this world. Just like Satan said, did God really say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? So these people question the authority of God, the goodness of God, the justness of God. If possible, these people will, will lead astray those in the church. They outright oppose the rule of Christ. We see this, verse 18, it says, they don't serve Christ, but what do they serve? Their own appetites, their own desires, their own glory, their own name. They whisper lies like, does the Bible really say Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life? That's, that's pretty exclusive. Who wants a God like that? Does the Bible really say sexual morality, divorce, lust, homosexuality, transgenderism are wrong? Why would God give me desires and then tell me not to pursue them? I just want to follow my own heart. Why would I serve a God who wants me to be unhappy and unsatisfied. Listen, we need to know this, church. Satan wants to justify your every vice. Do you know that? Every vice. He wants you to feel justified in your anger, justified in your impatience, justified in your sexual desires. Now, how does he do this? Look at verse 18. Through smooth talk and flattery. His message tickles our ears. It sounds convincing. So I, I, I want to say just two things about this. Number one, false teachers do not need to physically enter the church today. They can, but let's just be aware, they don't actually need to get in these walls to communicate their ideas. The internet, social media, and cell phones are where the most prevalent false gospels are being spread, and we're bombarded with them moment by moment. And I... I love technology. I, I preach from my iPad. I have my iPhone. Like, I'm not against technology. We say that all the time. It is a gift. And yet, it brings many, many dangers with it. And we need to know that. We need to realize that the messages coming from the phone, they're not neutral. Our culture's not neutral. It's not saying, you decide which way you want to go, Satan or, or God. No, it's pulling towards Satan at all moments of the day. So secondly, false gospels don't storm the church's doors where they creep in slowly. I want you to think about it today. There are, there are countless churches today, countless churches in every denomination that deny the inerrancy of God's word. Many churches today, they fully support transgenderism. And most of these churches, 10 to 40 years ago, would not hold the doctrinal and cultural positions that they hold today. In fact, if you told them they would hold them today, they would laugh at you, say, impossible. There's no way I would do that. So how did it happen? 
Well, to answer that question, we'd go like way beyond the scope of this sermon. It'd take us way too much time. But, but spiritual drift towards heresy and abandonment of the church takes place over hundreds of little decisions, not just one. I mean, think about it. A married couple does not move towards divorce after one argument. But after many arguments, after many events, what seems absolutely implausible after argument number one becomes very plausible over time. This is why Paul says, watch out. And at the end of verse 17, he says, avoid them. We're not called to be monks. We're not called like in the Middle Ages to remove ourselves from society, to remove ourselves from the things in this world. And yet, we must realize that the cultural messages we're being bombarded with are not neutral. They're powered by the prince of lies. We must be on guard with how we use technology. We must be actively aware that the world is tempting us to make small decisions every day to compromise in our faith. Evaluate the way that the things that you do. The small decisions that you do add up to the large decisions that you make. We often think that, that there are many important decisions we make in our, in, our, in our lifetime, but there's only a couple. But those big decisions, who you marry, where you live, they're informed by, by millions of tiny little decisions that you make all the time. We must not be a lifeguard distracted by social media while our faith and others drown around us. So in verses 17 and 18, Paul gives us this negative command. Watch out. Avoid them. That's what he's telling us. The negative command. But then in verse 19, we're given a positive command. Paul calls us to persevere in our faith. So there's, there's two things I want us to see here now. Look at verse 19. First thing Paul does, he rejoices in the church's past Obedience, look at it. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Paul praises the church. You've been alert to false gospels. Paul rejoices in, in the obedience to Christ. Your past obedience testifies of your salvation. Your past obedience testifies to God's grace in your life. Do you know that? Your past obedience testifies to God's grace in your life. But Paul doesn't stop there, and neither can we. Not once in the Bible does God say, or any of the biblical writers say, you're saved, therefore you have nothing to do. Like, never once do we read that. You're good to go, just sit back and see how it all turns out. Works are the evidence of your faith. If there are no works, we must ask, where is our faith? So the, the second thing is, Paul Paul calls them to perseverance. He basically says, keep living a life of obedience. He doesn't say, trust in your past obedience to overcome future temptation. Look towards past obedience as a means of seeing how God has worked in your past to give you confidence in the future, but never trust in past obedience against future temptation. Rather, Paul specifically says, be wise as to what is good, be innocent as to what is evil. That begs the question, do you live a wise and innocent life? Think about that. 
Are you wise in how you use your phone? Are you wise with social media? Would your friends say you are innocent in how you talk and how you think and how you act? If we could watch how you live for a whole week, which would be weird for all of us, and none of us would desire this at all, but if we could, would we see wisdom and innocence? Let's think through that. Look back at verse 18. Why are people deceived? Why are they deceived? It says that they're naive. They're simple. They're unsuspecting. They're they're not maturing. They're not growing. These people have not become obedient to the truths of Scripture. Rather, like an untrained dog, they run after every squirrel, bunny, and butterfly. And I'm very aware of this right now because we have a, a new puppy. And he's getting better and better every single day because we train him once or twice a day. We take him out. And today I took him for a walk, and he stayed by my side the entire time. A week ago, that would not have happened at all. He would run after everything. He is unwise and he's foolish, and as we're growing, he's getting wiser and, and less foolish, I think. He might not be innocent. I'm not sure about that at all. But if we're, if we're disobedient to the truths of Scripture, we're like that foolish puppy, just running after everything, just doing what we want, carefree of the commands of Scripture, of the glory of God. And I, I just want to address men for a moment. Uh, I probably do this because we just had man camp, and it feels like we should still address men. Um, men, you are specifically called to be the shepherds of your house. You're specifically called to be the shepherds in the church. You're to live a life of wisdom and innocence. Now, now women, don't be like, yes, that's right. It's you too. So, like, don't just nudge. You can nudge back, men. No, don't. That's, that's going to get weird. But men, specifically, you're called to lead. You're called to show, to be an example of wisdom and innocence in your house. You're to show your family what Christ looks like, what he lives like. What does it mean to know the kingdom of this world will fall and only the kingdom of God will last? Men, your role is to show your family what that looks like. What are your desires? What are your goals? What are your purposes? How do you speak? How do you entertain yourself? What's important? We're all called, if you're a Christian, we're all called to know these truths, to live these truths. Men, you're called to set the example in your house. You're called to set the example in God's household, the church. Church, this is all of us. It's your, it's our responsibility that we appoint elders who are wise and innocent. If we appoint men who are not wise and innocent, it's, it's not just their fault they got here, it's our fault that we appointed them. If you're a single woman today and you're considering marriage, look for a man who's wise in godliness and innocent as to what is evil. Don't hope they will be in the future. Do they give evidence today of wisdom and godliness and innocence? Do they love Christ? Wives, pray this for your husbands. Parents, pray this for your children. So how do we live a life of wisdom? How do we live a life of innocence? We must know scripture. 
We must know Scripture. In fact, we could look at a lot of Scripture right now. This one's not on your screen, uh, but I would write it down. Like Psalm 119, verse 9, verse 11, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man live wisely? How can a young man live godly? How can a young man live innocent? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I would not sin against you. I've stored up your word in my heart that I would live a life of wisdom. I've stored up your word in my heart that I'd be innocent. I've stored up your word in my heart that I would live a godly life. God's word, this Bible, the 66 books contained in here are the primary means in which the spirit of God uses to grow you in wisdom that you would live a godly life. You know that? Kent Hughes, he was a pastor. He said, the word of God is massively inerrant. There's no error in it. It's totally sufficient and massively potent. You get that? It's massively potent. This word, God's word, is his voice in the means in which the spirit transforms you. It's the means in which God uses to give you life, to grow you in godliness, to sustain you in godliness, to bring you to the end of the race, that we would be there when Christ returns, brought into the new heavens and new earth. It's by knowing God's word we will see with clarity the world we will live in. All of a sudden we will understand what is wise and what is godly and what is unwise and what is foolish. It's through the, the word we are alert to lies and temptations. It's by the word God increases our affections for Christ, for his church. It's the word of God that plants the seeds of faith in our hearts that our lives would be characterized by the fruit of the spirit. If you read the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, you know where it says love, joy, peace, patience. And you're going, well, I'm not loving. I'm not peaceful. I'm not patient. Read the word. Pray the Spirit of God would work the truths of his word into your life, that you'd be more and more conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. We're not called to squeeze the word into our daily lives. Rather, we're called to radically live our lives around this word, to let it inform everything that we do. Men, you need to know the word, love the word. You need to meditate on the word every day. You need to think about, how do I do this? How do I prioritize this? Everything in the world is going to pass. Only the kingdom of God is going to sustain, is going to last, is going to be here for all of eternity. And those who love Christ, how do you teach those truths to your children, to your wife, to those who are around you? It's by knowing the word, by loving the word, by living out the truths of this word. Remember, the kingdom of God will perish. There's nothing more significant than you can do with your families than help them to know the word of God. Nothing more significant. They don't need to know how to mow lawns. They don't need to know how to chainsaw a tree, although that's cool. They don't need to know how to cook and clean and do these things that are helpful in life and we should teach them. But the priority of being a father, of mother, of a Christian is that we would know the word and teach the word. And how we do that will affect everything else that we do. How we clean, how we cook, how we work.
Women, dedicate yourselves to the word. As a church, we must be transformed and conformed by the word of God. It's when you read this book, when you hear this book, you're hearing the very voice of God. People today So I just wish God would speak. It's stupid to say that. Because he literally has spoken right here. So I want something fresh. Guess what? It's the living word. It's always fresh. It's always applicable. To say you want something fresh is to deny the truth of Scripture and to prove you don't know what it says. It's always applicable. It's always truthful. It's the living word. It comes from God. He's eternal. And so what God said in the past is applicable in the present and the future. So we need to know this word. Of all the things that you do, men, of all things you do, they're important things. But nothing's more important than this. And these truths inform how you do everything else and what you do and what you do not do. So let me ask you just one question before we move on. What is it that you need to do? Add, change, subtract in your life so you can spend more time in God's word. What would that look like? Just think through that. And if you're here today and you're going, man, I really don't spend time in God's word, then you really need to rethink your schedule and the priorities that you have in your life. This is your priority. This is your priority. As a believer, as a Christian, as a citizen of God's kingdom, this is how we live. So Paul's now, he wants to give us motivation for living a life of obedience, for living this life of wisdom, this life of innocence. So he's going to remind us of the defeat of Satan. So if you look at verse 20, Paul, Paul reminds the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now the Bible's clear. And we've said this already. From cover to cover, there's one God and he will reign supreme. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, we see when sin comes into the garden and, and, that, men and that man and woman, they, they disobey God. Then God appears and he, he gives these punishments. And he's going to punish, he's going to bring uh, consequences on the man, consequences on the woman. But to the serpent, this is what he says. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So you'll, you'll crush his heel. If any of you get a crushed heel, you'll live. It'll hurt, but you'll live. But he will crush your head, is what God says. This, this offspring of the woman will do to the head of the serpent. Now, if you get your head crushed, you will not live. Just biology, talk to, talk to Robert. He'll help you out. So we're told, the very beginning of the Bible, where sin enters into this world, there's a day coming where Satan, the one who rules the kingdom of this world, will be crushed. And at that, everything of his will be absolutely crushed. Now, who is this man? Who is this offspring? It's Jesus. We know this. We see this all throughout Scripture. In fact, Colossians 2.15 says this. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in him, in Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ is the beacon of hope for every believer and the hammer of judgment for all who oppose his rule. In Revelation 20, we're told when Jesus returns, Satan, death, Hades, all who reject Christ, all who reject the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the glory of God, will be forever thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus comes, and if we go to the the Gospels, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that when Jesus comes, what does he preach? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. All other kingdoms will fall, the weeds will be gathered, and one day they will be burned. The cross is the guarantee of the destruction of every kingdom but God's. And Jesus, we're told, is the everlasting good and righteous king. He's our mighty conqueror. But when you look at verse 20, what do we read? It does not say that Satan will be crushed under the feet of Jesus. What does it say? Satan will be crushed under our feet, the church's feet. But how? Is that kind of confusing? It's kind of strange. Like, it would totally make sense if we read, and it'll be crushed under Jesus' feet, right? He's the king. He crushed him at the cross, throws him in the lake of fire. If anyone's doing any crushing, who's it going to be? Jesus, right? But that's not what the text says. So let me give a couple verses that I think give us an understanding of what we're being told here. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, we we see that 72 disciples returned to Jesus. Jesus sent them out that they would preach about the kingdom of God and they would cast out demons. And we're told when they come back, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like like lightning from heaven. So at the preaching of the word of God, Jesus says, I've seen Satan fall. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. And the great dragon, this is Satan, was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Verse 11. And they, the believers, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. So verse 11 says the saints have conquered Satan by the blood of Jesus and by the word of their testimony, for they love Jesus even if it costs them their own life. In both these texts, we see that through the obedience of the saints, Satan is overcome. That puts a little bit different light when we start praying for our missionaries overseas who are arrested. Even by their obedience, which might cost them their life, Satan is crushed. They've overcome the accuser. Scripture seems to indicate that the believer's obedience is the means in which we participate and anticipate the crushing of Satan. 
Satan is overcome by our testimony. Satan is overcome by our, test, by our obedience. Even if it costs you your life. Do you get that? Your obedience is the means in which Christ uses to crush Satan. So think about this. What are we, what are we talking about in this text? He's talking to the church and he's saying, look, there's going to be dangers. There's going to be temptations. So what does he say? Be obedient. Stay the course. Follow the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus is your king. Don't be distracted. Keep obeying. Why? Because it's by your obedience God brings about the crushing of the serpent, which is the return of Christ when all things will be thrown into the lake of fire and there will be one kingdom left standing. Which means you being alert to the false gospels in the world, you living an innocent and wise life, you spending time in the word each day and being made more like Jesus, you teaching your family about Jesus is the means in which Satan will be crushed. You get that? Like that puts a powerful motivation behind it. And it takes the small acts of obedience that we often think, well, does, any, does it matter? Yes, it matters. The small acts of obedience that we do each and every day of trusting in Christ, praying to him, following him, standing up for the gospel, living a wise and innocent life is the very means Satan is crushed in this world. We're participating and anticipating the final destruction of Satan. Praise God. Now you might say, if Jesus' return is dependent on my obedience then we're going to be waiting for a while. That might be where you go at this moment. Go, well, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So this is where we go to verse 20. And verse 20 at the very end gives us massive hope. Paul encourages us with the presence of Jesus. Look look at verse 20. Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, So let's put this back in context. Snakes are slithering their way into the church. I hate snakes. Snakes are slithering their way into the church and they're whispering lies. Is God really good? Is God really just? Trying to lure all who he can away from the kingdom of God. So Paul says, stay the course. Be, be perseverant. Satan will be crushed. And you go, but, but, but can I? How can this happen? Jesus will be with you at every moment of the day. Jesus doesn't save us from our sins and sit back and say, let's just see how it turns out. We've been united to Christ. The reason Satan is crushed under our feet is because Christ is in us. Do you get that? It's not like it's you and I doing it. It's not like it's by your power and by your strength and by your wisdom. It's because Christ is in us and we've been given his righteousness and his spirit enables us to live the obedient life. It's all about Jesus. So when we read, Satan's going to be crushed under our feet, it's not meant to puff up the church and go, well, look how cool we are. It's meant to go, praise God, Jesus is in us and with us. The reason you can obey and persevere in your faith is because Jesus is with you. You're not alone. And we see this truth all throughout Scripture. We could show it in in the Exodus and all throughout the Old Testament. 
But let me just point to Matthew 28. Many of you know this text. We find the Great Commission here. In in Matthew 28, Jesus turns to the church. Remember the disciples all around him. And he says, go. Therefore, make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. Go to all the nations and do this. And if anyone is sitting there going, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can go to the nations. I'm not sure what I can do. How does the Great Commission end? How does the Gospel of Matthew end? Chapter 28, verse 20, and he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The confidence of the Christian is always Christ. Christ is the one who saves us. Christ is the one who keeps us saved. Christ is the one who's in us and with us and sustains us and promises his presence with us at all times. It's all because of Jesus. You've been saved to live a wise and innocent life. You've been saved to testify of the beauty, the majesty, the supremacy of Jesus' rule. You've been saved to help others know Jesus and to encourage the church running the race. And all that's possible because you've been united to Christ. And so when we talk about spending more time in the word of Christ, that is the, the, the movement of your soul because Christ is in you. You get that? Like he's inclining your nature, everything about you to love his rule, to love his will, to love his word, to love his people, that we would be in this world living a wise and innocent life resistant to the false gospels that are present. So we would show the truth of Jesus as king and the hope that we have. So one more time, men, show your family Christ. You've been called to show your family Christ. Live a life of wisdom and innocence. I encourage you, think about what you do. Think about what you watch. Think about what you laugh at. Think about how you spend your time. Don't fall prey to the lies of Satan. Don't be apathetic in your faith. Men, you lead. You lead your family. You lead the church. You lead those around you to know Jesus. Be an example for the church. And do this and the knowledge, and the confidence that Jesus is in you and with you. And know this, that every one of you, men, woman, child, it's by your obedience Satan is crushed because Christ is in you. And as we obey, we long for the day Jesus returns. We live to advance the rule of Christ because only Christ's kingdom will last for all of eternity. Let me pray, and we will partake of communion. Father, we we praise you today. Jesus, you came and established your kingdom at the cross. You died the death we should have died. You paid the punishment for our sins. You absorbed the wrath that we deserved. And you did so so we could be saved so we could be forgiven, so there would be no condemnation against us, so we'd be saved and held and kept by your love and grace. Father, I pray that every believer here would be reminded of the assurance of their salvation today and the responsibility that we now have because you are in us 
to live a wise, obedient, and innocent life. That those who do not yet know you would see the beauty of your rule and desire you. That we would encourage those who are believers to continue to persevere in the faith. God, may we be reminded today that the Christian life is not about our strength and power. It's all about you in us. We've been saved by grace, sustained by grace, held by grace. God, we praise you that you alone are worthy of our glory, of all honor, and that we know that it was while we, when we were weak and ungodly and enemies, we were saved. We did nothing to, be, to earn our salvation. And so, God, may we boldly declare your rule in this world. Not because we are eloquent, not because we tickle people's ears, but because we know your gospel has the power to save and to bring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so, God, I pray, use us, and may we boldly proclaim the truths of your scripture. Father, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.